When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Ladies Who London podcast. I'm Emily Dell. And I'm Alex Lacey and we're Qualified London Blue Badge Tourist Guides. Each week we bring to you some of the best bits of London. We talk about our favourite people, places and events with a bit of information, a lot of laughs and a whole lot of fun. We can be found on Instagram at Ladies Who London podcast and on our websites guideemily.com and alexlacy.com for information about our upcoming walking tours and virtual tours as well as what the blue badge guiding qualification is all about yay yeah <laughs> i made it. I did it you made it all the way through <laughs> alex i didn't mess it up this week <laughs> hurrah hurrah wonders will never cease how Gosh. are you i am very well good. i am very well feeling good yeah. how are you yeah pretty good you know uh chugging along um things are starting to open up which is really exciting yeah um yeah and i've got my walking tours up and running and bookings are coming in so that's really good nice yeah it would be quite strange won't it seeing shops open and yeah. and and pubs to sit outside and things it will be uh yeah very different yeah, i think it'll be really different and um yeah it'll, it'll be weird sort of going back to that after so long and and seeing london opening up oh yeah i don't know it's gonna be slightly weird but very good i think mm, yeah and it's been a bit of a bit of a strange week isn't it there was some news yes we definitely must address the uh, the bit of very big royal news that happened this week mm. which is that we lost old phil we did at two months shy of his 100th birthday which is a bit of a shame because I, you know, that when when people in the UK, uh, actually, I think it's Commonwealth as well, uh, reach 100 years old, the Queen sends them a telegram. And I really love the idea of her just rolling over in bed and going, morning, Philip, there we go, uh, which is <laughs> rather lovely, but um, was not to be. Yeah, good old, uh, good old Phil. Oh, um, do you think that's how she'd say it? <laughs> oh, morning, certainly. Phil, here you go. It's like she's in the room when, I, when I'm doing a, a Queen impression. Thank <laughs> you, Phil. Um, Hello, Phil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, goodness. I mean, not, yes. not really a shock because he was ninety nine. Um, exactly, but, but still, it's you know, it's a big era. thing, and all the flags are at half mast. It's um, there's nothing to watch on the telly. <laughs> nope. Um, I just watched a bit of football, and Tottenham and Man U did their did their two minute silence. Yeah, sorry, I don't know why I brought a football link in, but there you go. <laughs> 
So mm. it definitely end with era, isn't it? And I, yeah. yeah, I guess um, it's 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 always really interesting to think about this. And and in terms of us, it's you know Prince Philip, and he is the prince, the Duke of Edinburgh, and and uh, sort of in in some forms a sort of I want to say celebrity. It's not quite celebrity, but we've got to remember he's somebody's father, husband, grandfather, and so for the royal family, even though they are an institution and they are sort of almost a kind of celebrity level people knowing about them ultimately they're still a family and they've just lost the the patriarch really so exactly yes i kind of want to give yes. the queen a bit of a hug i want to go and give her a big hug i've always wanted to give the queen a bit of a hug <laughs> and i was trying to think earlier you know have i had any connections with prince philip have i have i met him and the instant answer was obviously no um i met him i met him at a duke of edinburgh award Oh, thing, did you? Yeah. Do you know what? I thought when I thought this earlier, I thought I bet Alex <laughs> has met him. <laughs> did yeah, he, did it, he go it, to your thirtieth birthday? Yeah, um, yeah. Briefly, he came and um, it was for the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme. Um, which, if you're not from the UK, it was a a thing that he set up to essentially kind of encourage young people to 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 do loads of stuff. So that you have to do a skill and a and a sport and a bit of community service and all kinds of different stuff. And uh, and there's different you know, gold, silver, um, and bronze. And when you get to the gold one, uh, you get to go to one of the royal palaces and have your um, you know, the badge given to you by. Um, I I got chatting to Linford Christie at the one I went to, which was brilliant. Oh, um, fantastic! But then um, good old uh, Phil used to sort of pop up and have a chat with you. So he came and kind of had a chat with our little group, but very briefly in a sort of. Oh, see, that's where I was going wrong. I I never completed it. I did my bronze and silver and just kind of got distracted. So it's the gold where I. <laughs> I think a lot of people half asked the gold and the gold. You know, the gold took <laughs> quite a lot. You had to everything that you did, you had to do it for longer or for better or whatever. And so it was quite an undertaking and and. Um, and a lot of people, I think, sort of half did it and then left school and never quite finished it, which is totally normal. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a quitter like you, Em. So, <laughs> I tell you, you know, I probably yeah. just didn't do it because I had better things to do, like the uh, uh, washing up or something. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Uh, but yeah, it was great. I, I was more excited, really, about meeting Linford Christie. But um, uh, yes. yeah, so I did. I did meet him very, very briefly in a in a very sort of passing way. Mm. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, my dad go. knows him. My dad's got stories uh, about him because um, my dad, do, yeah, does a bit of work for work for the palace at times. So he's he's met him on several occasions. And had dinner oh well, we've got to get these stories, Alex. Yeah, maybe I'll write down onto the podcast next week, and he can tell yeah. us about Phil. <laughs> yeah, great. Right. So wow. we well, adieu, Phil. It's been fun. Mm, indeed. Um, yeah. There we go. Right. Well. Let's pick up the <laughs> pick up the uh, the mood a little bit. Yes. So last week, what yes. did we do? Oh, I don't know. What did we do? Um, what? Do... Oh, it was the smog, wasn't it? It was the smog. Yes, it was the smog, I'm Alex. Such, yes, I'm such... Honestly, I, I've, I've got goldfish memory. I'm, I'm, I can't remember. What a smoggy brain. Yeah, definitely a smoggy brain. And on that note, um, I did get a little uh, message from Hannah, who is a listener who um, has actually been following me on Instagram for about a year now. We've been sort of, we kind of Instagram. She's not following us. me. Can I put a plea Whoever you are, can you follow Guy Emily as well, please? Actually, can you all follow Guy Emily? Yeah, I suspect she I'm probably is. on the old followers. <laughs> I suspect she probably is. But she, um, we got a message from her. Um, and she said, after listening to the podcast about the smog, she asked her dad about it because um, he grew up in Hertfordshire and he was 10 at the time. And he said, this is a brilliant story. He says that he remembers hiding in someone's front garden as he could hear footsteps coming through the fog, but he couldn't see who it was. So he was, you know, a bit bit scared. And he waited for them to go by and then he made his way home. And it turns out it was his dad who'd gone out to find him. (laughs) 
I've heard that it was all out, you know, in Hertfordshire, not even in London, and uh, couldn't even God, see just to hear the kind of the, the the tapping of the shoes yeah. going past. Yeah. Wow. If anyone else has a smog story, can you please uh, please send them in? Good old smog story. We love it. So thanks, Hannah. That was a, that was a good one. Yeah, I like that. Brilliant. Thanks, Hannah. Um, amazing. So we should probably find out uh, where we got to on uh, ye oldie podcasty pedestal uh, from last week. Yes, I have to say, when I wrote out Smog Taxi Dude, I thought, well, this is obviously going to be something that people want to go for. <laughs> Smog Taxi Dude. I mean, even if you didn't listen to our podcast, you'd be like, yep, having that one. I didn't think you were actually going to write that, though. <laughs> yeah, or and, and if people didn't know the podcast, and they probably thought that I should have put Smug Taxi Dude and accidentally put Smog. But either way, I think it was getting a vote. Are you just trying to build up to the fact that you don't think you've won this week? You're I I don't think I've won this week. <laughs> and I, yeah, you're right. I do think that because <laughs> of the way that I wrote it, Smog Taxi Dude, oh. which obviously is something that you said, I'm not completely taking, taking everything for it, but um, Smog Taxi Dude Pickpockets. I know which one I'd go for. You'd go for Smog Taxi Dude, wouldn't you? I would. <laughs> In fact, I think I did. <laughs> well, um, so it was It was definitely not as close as it has been in recent weeks. Mm. Uh, it was 33 to 52. <sighs> so that's a bit of a chasm there. A bit of a chasm. That is, because it's been, you know, we've been one away or four away. And wow, that's a big drop. And the winner was you. You are kidding yeah, me. Yeah, I am kidding. It was me. Oh, <laughs> I was so sucked in then, sucked into the fog. Oh, sorry. Oh god. Yes. I re- god. That was yeah. Bring it back. Shock. Yeah, yeah. So now it's fifteen twelve. Fifteen twelve. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which are the Tudors? Oh, dear amazing. Me. Well, well, well done. Well done. Well done. Thank, you you um, Thank you very much. Thank you. I will take that, that win. You deserved it. I'll be very well grateful deserved. for that win and yes. not at all rub it in your face. <laughs> no, I do think pickpockets were a good one. They were. You know, the stories of pickpockets. But you've got to be clever, you yeah. know, in terms of how you write it on the poll, I think. So I should have, you know, oh, you know. Gary the pickpocket or something. <laughs> pickpocket dude. Pickpocket pick swan. Pickpocket dude. <laughs> <laughs> that might have swung it for me, but there, there we, we go. go. Hey-ho. Hey-ho, well done. So this week, um, where did it land? Trafalgar Square, wasn't it? Yeah. Was it yes. Trafalgar? Yes, it was Trafalgar Square. It was yes. Trafalgar Square. Um, so I picked, and I'm slightly going just off the corner of Trafalgar Square. I'm being a bit cheeky uh, because there is Coots Bank just around the corner. And I did promise you a um, a story that my uh, my friend had told me about <gasps> Coots Bank. Yeah. So um, Coots Bank, for those who don't know, it is um, it is a very very uh, prestigious institution it is obviously a bank uh and it's where the royal family bank and you know the queen mother left a massive overdraft when she died there and like it's it's a it's a pretty big institution and it's got philanthropic links and all this kind of thing but ultimately it's it's a you know a rich people's bank and a friend of mine many years ago um didn't know this and she was sort of wandering through london and she needed to open a bank uh bank account she sort of tootled on into coots and I said, you know, I'd like to open a bank account. And they were like, oh, yes, absolutely. So you know, sat her down and gave her a glass of champagne and this, that and the other and tootling around and you know, all that kind of <laughs> thing. Get this at Barclays. Yeah, right. And they, and they sort of got, got to the nitty gritty of it. And um, 
Uh, and they sort of said, you know, how much are you starting the account with or whatever? And yeah, she was like, a few hundred quid. <laughs> and and uh, they kind of rather, rather sort of delicately had to say, well, the minimum you, you can start an account with is £500,000. Uh, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Did she, she suddenly she say, "Oh, can we change this to the prosecco, please?" Yes, she didn't open an account there. Um, yeah, but uh, what a great thing! Sort of going. And that's such a good thing to know. So, if you're wanting yeah. a little glass of bubbles, you yeah. know, and you're quite good, quite a good actor, yeah. pop yourself in there. Exactly. So they obviously hadn't chat. She hadn't obviously hadn't figured that out or chat all them. You know what her kind of her budget was or anything hilarious but anyway so that's cool wow. so I've, I've taken that as the jumping off point for um, a lady that i found out about um a couple of years ago and i'm just fascinated by because she is so good and she's so funny well i say funny i don't think she was ne- well i i mean from all accounts she seemed to be like a, a bit of a wicked laugh to be around um but her story is utterly brilliant and i just think it's very entertaining um and she's really interesting so i'm going to talk about angela burdett coots mm. um so the coots name obviously linked to the bank there um and her dates uh 1814 she's born in london she's you know london throughout her whole life uh and she dies in 1906 at the pretty uh decent age of 92 which is not wow. bad uh, really bad. so angela burdett coots why are we talking about her and what makes her so interesting she has she is a woman who goes really really against the grain um of everything that women are expected to do in the victorian period with her money so to go back to the very start where does she, where does the coots link come from um the coots thomas coots who set up the coots bank which is still obviously going today uh, was her grandfather Hmm. Um, her mother was his daughter, Sophia Coots, and he, you know, Coots had, had, had set up this bank and become extraordinarily wealthy, like really, really wealthy. Um, and Angela is the youngest of six children born to uh, Sophia Coots and her father, Sir Francis Burdett. And he was um, he was a member of parliament. He was quite radical, actually. Uh, and this is where Angela gets a bit of her kind of radical. She's essentially a radical philanthropist, really. And she's born on, on Piccadilly. Uh, in 1814 and she's brought up in this family with with five brothers and sisters and her father is busy as an MP kind of um, he's introducing motions for parliamentary reform and he's trying to expose government corruption he's campaigning against the slave trade he's campaigning for philanthropy and all this kind of stuff so he's man I mean right yeah we're we, we're liking him he's good yes. um, although I'm just going to throw into the mix that he he, he had been having a few affairs um oh. and actually actually angela is the outcome of um the the the, the first she's, she comes from the, the reconciliation between him and sophia after he's had a pretty disastrous affair so they get oh. back together and angela's then born as a sort of you know peace treaty if you like really and um, do they stay together ever you know ever since i think they do actually yes and they only die uh, a couple of days apart and they are buried together so oh, wow. i think that they were still married for the whole of their lives i haven't I didn't kind of go all the way to the the end of their lives, but they they were definitely sort of together um, for most of it anyway. And they are, and of course, you know, Thomas Coots, this chap who's owning this bank, is not particularly pleased about all these massive high profile affairs and all this sort of stuff. So he's he's always a bit sort of side eye about his son in law, and it's you know a slightly fractious relationship right there. But one of the things they have is um, very, very good links, as you might imagine. They've got Queen Victoria as a family friend uh, and they're moving in the real upper echelons of society. So they really are definitely the aristocracy. They're high up there. Um, and, and this is where Angela stays throughout her life as well. Now, 
Um, her grandfather, Thomas Coots, um, had got remarried to a, a woman called Harriet Mellon, who was a lot, lot younger than him, massively, you know, tons and tons of years younger than him. And in 1822, Thomas Coots dies and mm -hmm. he leaves his entire fortune, his whole estate to this new wife, Harriet Mellon. Gosh. So to start with, so essentially Sophia, Angela's mother, doesn't get any, doesn't get anything from her father. And originally she sort of thinks, well, I might um, take this to court and I might oppose the will. But in the end, she's, she gets a bit of legal advice and, and they sort of say, look, I haven't really got a leg to stand on because women didn't. So she mm. gives up on that. But Harriet decides, um, now Harriet's the, the, the Duchess of St. Albans, and she decides that when she's when she dies, her money that she's got from Thomas Coots is going to go back into the Coots family, which is, a, you know, quite a, quite a lovely thing, actually. Hmm. And so she, but she decides she's not just going to give it out willy-nilly, she's going to figure out who to give it to. So she kind of takes a close look at the grandchildren. Over, you know, a number of years, she watches what they're up to and... She sort of, you know, she 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 takes a lot of interest in their lives and decides who it's going to go to. And um, did the sorry, Alice, just to say, did did the grandchildren know? Would they have been aware? I don't know, actually. I don't know. Possibly not. Because mm. um, otherwise, you can they, imagine they them kind of you know, sending gifts and you know making yeah. sure they're as they're as good as gold. Well, so Angela fairly obviously because she's the subject of our story it's like it's like films where you know stuff is going to happen you're like i wonder who it's going to happen to could it be the protagonist of the story she, angela is obviously going to get left the money um but when it is announced that she's she's inherited that money that's quite a shock to everybody mm. so whether or not they knew it was coming back to the grandchildren i don't know whether they certainly didn't know that it was going to go to angela put it that way so God, and so it all went to angela Right. So, yes, pretty much most of it anyway. So um, one of the grandchildren is a guy called Dudley and he's initially she's looking at him going, yeah, he's pretty decent. He works really hard. He's got good morals. But then he does something slightly stupid. He goes and marries a lady called Christine Bonaparte. Mm. You know that name? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. She's the niece of, uh, of Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay. Um, and at this point, Harriet is like, no, so, so she cuts him out. She's, she's not interested in giving him money. Um, there's a couple of others who are uh, in the running, but essentially um, she looks at Angela and Angela's been really, she, she's sort of taken on a companion role to her father. She's been very, very trustworthy. Um, she's met some really interesting people. She's, she's getting really um, friendly with William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli, who are going going to go on to be big politicians mm -hmm. um and she's got links you know with through her grandfather's um links and all this she's in with the european royalty and the nobility and all this kind of stuff so when harriet dies the will is read out and everybody's really shocked that the entire estate or pretty much the entire estate is left to angela you would be wouldn't you i mean if you yeah. were another one of those grandchildren you would be like what the hell you know yeah. You'd be like, couldn't you just divvy it around, you know, fair and square? Yeah. So th this is this is where she, Angela does do this a little bit. Um, she gives her mother an allowance of £8,000 a year. Oh. And she gives her sisters an allowance of £2,000 a year each. So actually, you know, Angela is not one who's going to grab the money and run and say thanks, you know. She, she looks after them, which is really good. Okay, good. And maybe Harriet knew that. Possibly. I mean, chances are, yeah. I mean it might have been the thing of if i give it to this person they're going to squander it but if i give it to angela i know that she you know her morals are right she's, mm. she's gonna look after people maybe that we don't know um okay yeah i mean it, it proves to be completely true so to give you a little bit of a sense of how much 
she's been left. She's been left pretty much the entire estate. Um, she becomes, uh, so it's in 1837 that she inherits all this money. And after Queen Victoria, it's said that she is the wealthiest woman in England. <gasps> yeah. Wow. And it's about 50% of her grandfather's fortune. So um, obviously um, his wife has, has you know spent quite a lot of it but then what's left she gets the majority of it and she gets about 1.8 million pounds which in today's money is about 170 million that's a lot of money a huge amount of money i mean what would you do if that suddenly came to you <laughs> i mean she was obviously quite well off anyway it's not like she was yeah, ever oh, yeah, yeah. ever gonna you know open the wrong door so to speak but wow i know quite mad that one of the sorry, great how old is she at this point alex um so 1837 so she would be about 24 23 24 <laughs> yeah right so Alley. yeah so <laughs> it's pretty decent it's not, it's not a bad pretty thing decent, to come into, really. pretty decent one of the great things there was um, a newspaper that um decided they were going to tell people how much the amount that she had um come into how much it would weigh it's <laughs> so weird how, how much, much the really money would weigh yeah Right. And what did they say? So it says the weight in ton. In, sorry, the weight in gold is thirteen tons, seven hundred weight, three quarters, thirteen pounds. And it gets even weirder. They go, it would require <laughs> one hundred and seven men to carry it, supposing that each of them carried two hundred and eighty nine pounds or the equivalent of a sack of flour. <laughs> what? Why do you need to know that? Weird. <laughs> I'm really glad they put that in because I was I about to question how many men it would take to actually lift the lift exactly. thing. Um, but there are a couple of stipulations that come with this, and they're slightly weird ones. Um, firstly, I mean, actually, this this one's not really so weird. But any uh, successors to Angela, so children or whatever, would mm -hmm. take the surname of Coots. So the, the 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 name has to kind of carry on. Mm -hmm. But the weird one is that um, the inheritance is conditional on her not marrying a foreign person. Oh. Yeah. Harriet, bit of a xenophobe. Possibly. I don't it might be they, you know, wanted the money to stay in the country. I don't know what the reasons are for it. I don't know whether that was her grandfather's um stipulation. Who knows? I don't Just know. But worried that the bank might suddenly I guess if yeah, if they marry somebody from elsewhere yeah. and maybe Angela decides to move. Yes, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So So what would you think would happen if a suddenly a 23, 24 year old woman um is comes into a vast amount of money? Um what what do you think the society is gonna make of that? Who's gonna come sniffing? Well, um let's let's say that her doorbell is um, going to probably catch fire because there's going to be so many people buzzing the hell out of it. Absolutely. Um, yes, there's going to be all sorts of people sniffing around, isn't there? There is. And there's a huge... And it's funny because up until then, she was described as being sort of a bit plain and a bit lanky. Oh, no. Um, so suddenly yeah. she's got a little bit of change. And exactly. People are suddenly like, people are interested in her. Oh, and no. she, she sets up home in Piccadilly and all of a sudden she's got a swathe of people who are all trying to... Um, to, to to win her hand and you know all of this plain and lanky mm. thing doesn't really seem to matter and, and whatever and she gets really quite sort of just just bombarded with offers of marriage from left and right from you know all over the place and it's quite bizarre and 
in the end, what she does is she's finding it just all a bit too much. She has no intention of getting married. She's not got any interest at all. And she says, she writes to a, a family friend who is also involved in the Coots Bank. And she says, um, you know, she kind of asks for help and says, look, you know, this is ridiculous. Could you sort of help me deal with all of this? And her dad finds out that she's written a letter to this guy and he says to her, I'm a bit kind of, I'm a bit peeved that you didn't tell me. I just, I could, if you'd have told me that it was such a problem, it's such an issue, I'd have put a stop to it. Like, so her dad is properly being an ec- epic dad here and just going, why didn't you tell me? I would have knocked their heads together. You know, like, <laughs> really, yeah, good. yeah, really good. And there's one guy, and this is a bit creepy. This is a bit kind of hashtag me too Um, There was one guy, guy called Richard Dunn. Uh, and he was a, a failed uh, barrister, I think. He was bankrupt, whichever way he was, he was bankrupt. And he was obviously taking a shine to, Angela slash her money and he essentially wherever she went he popped up so if when she went up to Harrogate in Yorkshire he followed her up there mm-hmm. when she was at her home um on Stratton Street which is um just off Piccadilly he would uh, take a room in the nearest hotel uh when she went out walking in the parks he would suddenly appear um if if she you know would go to a private walled garden or something he'd be peeking his head over the wall and waving at her um or kind of trying to get through the hedge oh god just too much back off he even managed to get into her home and leave his business card his 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 visitor card in her sitting room um and she essentially what she ended up having to do is to constantly have policemen in her hall and and servants and stuff whenever she's going anywhere sort of fend him off super creepy like properly so suddenly you know all this all this money all this wealth yeah is causing so much drama for yeah. her. Massive amounts of drama. Mm. Massive amounts. And she decides that she doesn't want to get married. Um, and social convention was such that uh, a woman, uh, a woman, um, wouldn't couldn't really engage in business. She wasn't allowed to. That was social convention. That's not something that you did. So Angela thought, well, so she'd been brought up in this pretty radical family. Uh, we heard what her dad was involved in fighting against the slave trade, fighting against poverty, all this kind of thing. Mm. And she goes the same way. And she's sort of backed by him the whole way. Whatever she's doing, he supports her. And she basically goes, right, I have this massive whack of cash, more than I will ever need. And she decides to start giving it away to good cause. I know she's brilliant. So I absolutely love her. She turns to philanthropy, essentially. And she starts giving out money to a whole variety of good causes, particularly when it is linked in with relieving poverty. That's something that she's really, really um, passionate about. She, um, in particular East London, she helps redevelop areas such as Bethnal Green. Uh, she build, builds homes for the poor. She pays uh, about £7,000 in, in money back then to install a new freshwater drinking fountain in Hackney Park, oh, wow. sorry, Victoria Park, which is in Hackney. Yeah. Um, and um, what she gave money to was massively diverse and hugely, hugely generous. She gave financial support to wives of soldiers serving in the Crimea. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually bankrolled Florence Nightingale quite a lot with loads of equipment to improve hygiene. And she supported army hospitals. We talked about Florence Nightingale um, a while back, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary Seacole. And she was supporting army hospitals and things like this. And essentially, she sort of threw money at anything that she thought was worthy. Um, and again quite radical she was massively concerned with child labor uh, so she was worried about these kids going out and working and and the poverty that they were living in she was funding schools and evening classes and trying to give children from deprived backgrounds uh, the ability to earn a living 
Um, oh, what an incredible lady. Oh, I mean, absolutely amazing. She was one of the first people to support cancer research as well. Mm. Quite fascinating. She gave the Royal Marsden Hospital, which is very well known for its cancer, um, cancer uh, treatment even now, she gave them an interest-free loan. And then she also carried on supporting them every year with an annual payment of £50 as well. Mm. She gave huge sums to relieve poverty in Ireland. There was the potato famine. The effects of that were widespread and she was um, giving money to that. And in particular, she was giving money to fund places where um, you could get the kind of things that you needed. So corn and flour and tea and sugar and all of that. You could buy it really, really cheaply because she was sort of bankrolling it. Mm. Um, one of my favourite things that is quite, really quite interesting. She, she loved animals. And one of the things that she did, her father actually had been the first politician to sponsor the first act against cruelty to animals, which is, again, you know, for Victorians, they don't really care about the, you know, the, the lives of the animals. They don't care about how, how well they're being treated. So this guy's stepping up and saying, you know, I think this is an important thing. And she follows suit and she is made president of the Ladies Committee of the RSPCA, mm. the Royal Society for the prevention of cruelty to animals. And one of the things, she was really closely involved in that. Um, and it, from doing that, she it helped the RSPCA kind of become what it was today, or what it is today, rather. Um, and she sort of put the, the founding into that. Um, have you ever Gosh. been to Edinburgh? Have I been to Edinburgh? Yes. Yeah. Do you know the statue of Greyfriars Bobby, which is on mm. the George the Fourth Bridge in Edinburgh? And Potentially, I've only been there. The, the little little terrier, and he. Um, the story goes that his master died, and he then every day would would basically guard the tomb of his master, for like some fifteen years or something until he died. And she heard about this story, and she commissioned that very famous statue that's on the bridge. And people oh, go and they right. rub. I think they rub his nose or they rub his paws or something. It always gets really shiny. Um, yeah. So that was Angela Burdett Coots who put that there as well. And she's funding lifeboats to the RNLI. She funds schemes, she, kind of schemes that she reckons are going to benefit mankind. So um, she funded David, David Livingston on his African explorations. And someone who we talked about in, I don't know if it was maybe the first podcast we did. Did we? When would we do Ada Lovelace? It was very early on, wasn't it? Uh, maybe the fifth, uh, fourth or fifth. No, possibly, I can't even remember mm. now. But early on, so one of the people that she um, bankrolled as well was Charles Babbage, who, of course, worked closely with Ada Lovelace in the development mm. of the first computer. And she was friends with these people as well. She'd get Charles Babbage, um, Michael Faraday, people like this. They would come and meet her in her father's home and she would talk about science with them, you know, incredibly interested and interesting lady. Mm. Um, and she would talk about science and be really, really fascinated. And she, yeah, she provided financial backing for Babbage's calculating engine, which, um, as we know, is the sort of forerunner to, you know, computing, really. Wow. Very and I wonder if, um, you know, if she had somebody by her side who was kind of helping her choose certain charities and companies and people to to help out because it sounds like she was just non-stop yeah it does and there's a lot of well so in terms of people by her side so you've got her father okay mm. so he is advising her um on what charities to look at but she's talking to a lot of people actually so she's talking to her father she's talking to um there's another lady uh called hannah and um, hannah was her governess um she was only a little bit older than uh, angela and so she, her father no actually it was her stepmother um, who left her the money brought her in as a governess 
um, and they got on really, really well. And actually, Harry, uh, Hannah and Angela lived um, next door to each other for their whole life. And even when Hannah married, she had the house next to Angela. So she they were very, very close. Um, she also had people like she was very friendly with the Duke of Wellington. He would, um, you know, give her advice on, on what she's people. Yeah. So there's a lot of people she'd be chatting to. And I tell you, one of the biggest people that she chatted to um, is somebody that you may have heard of. It's a it's pretty I don't know, he's, he's not very well known. He's a guy called Charles Dickens. Heard of him? Charles Dickens. Um, not <laughs> ringing any bells, actually, no. <laughs> so she and Charles Dickens were really, really good friends, really very close. And they met for the first time in 1839 uh, at the home of a guy who was involved in the running of Coote's Bank. And it seems like Dickens was really taken with her. He wrote her a letter and he said, I haven't really... I haven't done anything since I met you that has been of any importance to me. So he was obviously quite taken Whoa. with her. And she seemed pretty taken with him as well. Um, one of the one of the creepy things I read is that he gave her beauty advice on her skin. She, she, you know, he, he like I say, beauty was not her best advantage or best strongest attribute, which to be fair, doesn't matter at all. Um, but, you know, of course it did back then. And, and so he would give her advice on how to make her skin better and all this sort of stuff, whatever, anyway. That's but, a bit strange, isn't it? I, know, I wouldn't have thought that Charles Dickens was the the kind of person you'd you'd go to for skin advice. I don't think she went to him. I, I don't suspect it was solicited advice. I suspect it was no. One he was just unsolicited by men deciding how women should be. But anyway, let's move. Mm. <laughs> let's not dwell on that. But one of the things he did is in 1843 he approached us. So they they met at this um uh, di- this dinner party and they stayed friends and they would write to each other an awful lot. They were very very close friends. And they would kind of go tootling around London and looking at certain areas and, and the poverty and, and, you know, using that to sort of spur them on. And in 1843, Dickens uh, came to her with an idea about uh, ragged schools. Do you know what ragged schools are? Yes, yeah, so they're a little bit like blue coat schools. Mm. So um, they educate poor children. Yeah, essentially they're, they're, they're giving and it's it's. It's secular education as well. It's not religious education. So it's for the very, very poor. Uh, it's all free education. Um, yeah, and it's it's about yes, philanthropy, essentially. And Dickens had given a little bit of money um, to one of those schools. But of course, he doesn't, he doesn't have the kind of money that Angela does. And he asks her if she'd be interested in supporting. And she really is. So she invests quite a bit of money and she um, builds these public baths for them and a larger schoolroom and all this kind of thing. And she works actually very closely with another chap who's um, giving her advice, Lord Shaftesbury, who we know as a philanthropist oh, yes, as well. Yes. Um, Shaftesbury Avenue, named after him, all that kind of thing. And he had started up um, this this union of these ragged schools. And so she uh, supports him with that as well. And she finances quite a lot of them. And for the next um, eight to 10 years, well over um, 200 of these schools are set up in the UK for these poor children, which is a really, really big deal. Um, but her link to Dickens doesn't stop there. So a few years later, a few years after this, uh, in the mid 1840s, um, Dickens is getting his knickers in a twist about, because I mean, the good thing about Dickens is that, you know, he, he nobody is all good, nobody is all bad. And we know that Dickens has um, a little bit of a rocky history with his wife and all this sort of stuff. So he's not an absolute angel, but he, one of the things is he's come from poverty. He's seen it. He sees what the effects are. He's seen what it's like, what it does to families and this kind of thing. And so he writes to uh, Angela and says, look, 
I've got this plan. I'm seeing all these women and girls working on the streets as prostitutes. And I really want to give something, some kind of place, some building where we can essentially rehabilitate them is, is essentially what he wants to do. Get them off the streets, give them some training, give them some dignity back and support them to sort of then go out and, and live their own lives, really. Mm. And he had this idea to... Um, create a, a home if you like he called it an asylum an asylum i think is what we we would now think of uh, something a little bit like bedlam that we spoke about a few weeks ago mm, but it's actually, quite a negative word isn't it's it? quite a negative word and of course there are you know especially in this period there are lots of very negative ideas about the women who are prostitutes because they are seen as fallen women and all this kind of thing so i guess there was a negative element but really an asylum it's more about um well, there's a, there's a French word, as you, which is, you know, asylum in terms of looking after people, really, you know. Huge. Yeah, it's the same as uh, if somebody seeks asylum. It's about it's about giving them cover, giving them safety. So that's mm-hmm. what we, it's more that that thing rather than the sort of an asylum, the way that we might think. Yeah. Um, and he says, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to split into two. I reckon we can do about 30 women and they come in. They, it's going to be religion based. Uh, that must be the basis of, of the whole thing. And I'm going to bring them in and they go into the first uh, section and there is sort of probation area. And if they pass that through kind of good conduct and all this sort of stuff, they then progress into the second section, which is then called, you know, he's called it the society of the house, essentially. Okay. Um, now, Angela has is very aware of this because she lives on Piccadilly and she's seen them up and down the street every night, you know, in that area. And one group that is particularly vulnerable, this is something you don't always think about, are young female servants. Um, There's obviously a lot of young women who are in service. And um, there is, as well, there's kind of this idea that they go from job to job, but realistically their jobs are not safe and they can do something really small and the, the master of the house can say, you're out, go, that's it. Um, and then what do they do? So some of them between jobs are forced really into prostitution or something like that just to survive, mm. really, which is a real shame. So that's one of the uh, the options. And if they don't get good character references and all this kind of stuff, well, you know, it's all a bit it's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, it's all a bit um, a bit tricky, really. Um, and one of the people that, that says, oh, I don't, really don't think you should get involved in this is the Duke of Wellington. Uh, but she says, he says, you know he says that to her. He says, yeah, that to he Angela. says, oh, not, I'm not sure about that. Um, mm. he says, I don't think it's a, it's a good idea. Um, but she kind of says, oh, I don't really, nah, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm going to do it. And so she does. She agrees to fund this proposal, which uh, he says is going to cost about £700 a year, which nowadays is around £50,000 a year. So it's a, it's a good chunk of money. It's a definitely a very good chunk of money. So this, this is, is to create not one, but how many did he? One. one. Oh, just yeah. one. So yeah. that's to fund one. one a year yes. Thirty with 30 women. With 30 women. That's the plan. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So it's, you know, there's a lot of money going in there. And she, yeah. so she says, fine. And it, they originally planned to build somewhere. But then they realise that actually it's probably a lot cheaper to find somewhere that's already built and uh, use that one that's already there. And that's what they're going to do. So he needs to find somewhere. And she kind of says, you know, I'll give you the money. You go do it. You sort it. Absolutely fine. And he needs to get a house. He needs to get a matron and assistants and staff and all this kind of stuff. Um, He realised pretty quickly that 30, taking in 30 is is not that practical. Um, But he finds this cottage or this house called Urania Cottage. Um, he calls it the home because he wants it to be like a home. Okay. And he opens it in uh, 1847. 
And he starts publishing this leaflet, which he's giving out to women that he's finding in the streets, encouraging them to apply to join this place. And every young woman who um, responds to the leaflet, he interviews. And some people actually recommend people. They could be prison workers um, or the police. And they say, we've got this person who might might be right for it. Um, and he would then interview them and, and potentially accept them. And once they'd been accepted, they the condition was that you were not to mention your past anymore. The matrons would not be informed about it either. Oh, as and, soon as you entered? As soon as you entered, yeah. Okay. You've got to, that's it. You sort of draw a, draw a veil over that part of your life and you're not to talk about it and that kind of thing. Right. And it was opened in 1847, in the winter of 1847. Uh, and it started with four women and two more came in the following week. Um, and they, I think they could take about eight to ten maximum i think is around that and they would sleep three or four to a bedroom they'd each have their own bed and it was quite regimented they'd be up at six they had to make their beds they had they actually sort of had to inform if anybody was hiding booze or anything like that um, they had twice daily prayers um, although dickens was quite keen on not making it really sort of you know lash whipping it wasn't supposed to be about you've done wrong and repent mm. it was it was more about trying to get them kind of want what he saw as the straight and narrow, really. Okay. Um, so he's not asking them to sort of do lots of heavy, you know, repenting and moralising and all that sort of stuff. But they are there's a religious element to it. Um, and some of the people they had there were needlewomen who were starving. They had um, violent girls who'd been imprisoned. They'd had girls from ragged schools, um, a whole variety of different people. People had been done for shoplifting, even two women who had been um, locked up for attempting suicide which is quite interesting because, of course, suicide wow. was a crime. Um, and I, it would have been just, I mean, so this is 1847. And Charles Dickens, you know, he was he was pretty famous during his lifetime, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. So people would have sat down with him to be interviewed by him. That must have been quite peculiar. Yeah, it really would, wouldn't it? And I guess after all of these interviews, he would have known so much about life on the streets for women. Um, and I guess that's why in his novels he has quite quite a lot of empathy for yeah. women. It, it does, I think. And you know, he he grew up in. Um, we could do a whole different one on Dickens. And yeah, um, but he grew up in a, in an area. Well, his father was in debtors' prison, and he was going through some of the very poor areas, which is where he writes all these things from. And mm. yeah, the plight of women is something that didn't escape him. He's he's a very astute chap, you know. Um, so there we go. So it, you know, in terms of what they're doing there, it, it's almost like, I, when I was reading up about it, it sounded like boarding school. Um, they had three meals a day, they were given clothes to wear, they weren't allowed out on their own, the matron would take them out in kind of groups or, you know, the two of them or whatever. They weren't allowed um, unsupervised visits or anything like that, or, or even really correspondence, because Dickens was really worried that they were going to be dragged back into their old lives and things like that. They were given marks for good behaviour and they'd lose marks for bad behaviour. And those marks uh, were worth money. And so when they could save them up, and so when the time came to leave, they could then uh, sort of switch over their marks for money and they would have money to, to you know, to leave and go and do that and if they were if they caused trouble they'd be kicked out and all that kind of thing and and so yeah it's quite a it, it's, it's quite a regimented thing but the aim is to get people not not to sort of keep them there like they're a prisoner they could leave if they wanted to leave they could go um but to sort of give them some kind of structure and then hopefully after a year or so they'd be, then be able to go out and, and start their own home or whatever it might be and actually a lot of the time when they left, the aim was to get them on 
uh, a migrant ship going to Australia. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of the plan is when they went in, they, they knew that that the deal was, you know, you get we get you we get you sorted. You're all good to go. And we'll then pop you on a boat over to Australia and you can start a new life over there. Gosh, it's quite risky, isn't it? You know, to suddenly yeah. put the women on the boat and be like, well, I don't know if Dickens travelled to Australia himself, but not really know yeah. much about the land that they were about to go to. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's but by this point, you know, Australia is not just being um, sent. You know, all the all the criminals are being sent there. It's now being um, populated by Western, by, mm. by by British and other Westerners, and 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 it, you know, it's now a, a good place to go. It's people yeah. kind of migrating rather than being sent there as a punishment. And I guess it's that mental thing where it's like, as soon as you leave here, you are going to a better land. You are yeah. getting out of the place that you associate yeah. with you know your bad times yeah and mm. as well you know if you come out of their home and you stay in london very shortly surely your your old um you know your habits mates or your old pimp or whatever they're going to find you and then yeah. you're going to be back to where you are so i suppose yeah. if you take yourself completely out of the situation then yes um and like i say he did actually he, you could get expelled if you if you were deprived of uh, sorry if you um decided to kind of go off the rails you could you could be kicked out there was one little fact he he there were a few people that got kicked out. Um, there was one lady called Isabella Gordon. She'd caused a few problems for one of the uh, the staff there. Um, and if they were kicked out, then he would they'd take back all of the nice clothes they'd given them. And so when she um, when she left, she had she didn't have any clothes of her own. She had one dress on and in one of the really rough shawls. And they gave her a little bit of money to get a night's lodging. Um, and then the girl realizing that she's been kicked out and actually her chance has gone she apparently just broke down in tears um and she when when she got out of the door she stopped and she leant against the house for a good few minutes just crying her eyes out before she went to the gate um and then when she went out the gate and stood there for a little while and then apparently they saw her kind of going off down the street and she was crying and wiping her face with her shawl really awful and and dickens knew that of course given that she's probably going to be back in prostitution in a couple of days but if she's not going to abide by the rules he's not going to keep her there which is quite... we just let her walk up god dickens honestly yeah. Yeah. and it said that actually um that lady isabella gordon was the inspiration for a lady in david copperfield called martha endell who oh, i love that that's brilliant yeah who again you know goes back to her life as a prostitute and it says i think you know in the book she says she gets up and she puts her shawl around her and stops and then cries and then wipes her face in the shawl oh, and all that kind wow, of thing yeah, so, the inspiration yeah possibly oh, i'm that. gonna have to revisit that book yeah really interesting so this 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 home they over oh goodness um it closes in oh, when does it close about 1856 i think somewhere around there and um the first inmate goes off for australia in 1849 the very start of 1849 so she's done just over a year and they get through about 56 or so um women at the time and they reckon so a, a handful of them left of their own accord mm. fewer expelled and they reckon of the 56 about 30 of them uh went on to have a very fulfilling life they got married and had a, a decent life some of course you know went back into prostitution but about 30 of them uh, which i would say for the for the time is probably pretty decent odds that's a good percentage i'd yeah. say that's yeah, good exactly now they also did this so i mentioned earlier that angela burdett coots was involved in rebuilding 
uh, Bethnal Green, that kind of area. And that mm. was also with Charles Dickens, at least to start with. And they went, went and they kind of visited all these model homes, model buildings that were in existence um, for the kind of clearing of slums and giving up, you know, giving buildings to people who were, were poor. And they started planning the rebuilding of the East End a little bit. Um, it was Dickens who suggested Bethnal Green. If you read Oliver Twist, that's where Nancy is from. So he's got these links to it as well. So the when did I say that Urania Cottage closed down? Uh, okay, 1850. Oh, that's 18... wrong. It's 1862. 1862. 1862. Just remembered. So um, it now Urania Cottage closes down because um, Angela breaks off contact with Charles Dickens and she stops funding Urania Cottage. Oh, what's Dickie done? Well, um, we do know that, that Charles Dickens is, um, he has a very turbulent relationship with his wife and of course he has a mistress and it all goes a little bit wrong. And it's all very public, this affair mm. that he has and this breakup of his marriage. And it is so public and it's very much kind of washing your laundry in public that quite a few people um, get very sniffy about it, including Angela. And she finds it really quite unbecoming that this is happening. And so she decides, actually, I'm sort of done here. And she she not just backs off from Urania Cottage, but she breaks off contact with him completely. And oh. they don't really they're not really friends anymore. And it, it, and this includes not giving him any more money to yeah. to fund yeah. his idea. Exactly. She Gosh. still does go forward with the Bethnal Green thing, but she does it on her own. OK. Um, and she still does all of that. But it's not involving Charles Dickens anymore. Wow, it's so interesting, isn't it? And um, when you started, you know, talking about her connection to Charles Dickens, I was thinking, God, is this some, suddenly going to go sour? <laughs> is Charles Dickens actually kind of going to be a maniac in this home for women? Um, oh, no, I mean, it, it all seems very above board and very, you know, really quite noble, actually. <laughs> but I guess amazing. she has she has to be careful, doesn't she? Because she's she's helping so many people and she needs to be she can't basically be seen with somebody who is you know not not looking good in society mm -hmm. yeah and she is she does have a couple of you know she gets i mean of course you're doing things at a very high level philanthropically and realistically the only other people doing that or the majority are men so she has quite a lot of male mm -hmm. friendships mm -hmm. um, one including as i mentioned the duke of wellington i'm going to come back to this um this story from when i started I told you about him earlier, but I'm, I'm going to revisit it here because it's a really interesting friendship. Um, they're very, very close. There's quite a massive difference in age. When she is um, 30, he is 75. So there's so, yeah, really quite a massive difference in age. Um, but again, you know, he's got, uh, he, he's in those higher echelons. She's hanging out with him and they write an awful lot. Um, and when they're, they, they hang out a lot, but when they're not together, they write sometimes twice a day to each other. And mm. they reckon that during their friendship, they write each other about 800 letters. When has the Duke of Welly got time? <laughs> I know! You know, because he, you know, it wasn't just on the front line for Waterloo. It was... Well, this is obviously later in his life. So he oh, is, the, oh, of course, because yeah, he's 70-odd. He's 70-odd. You know, he's, he's, he's hung up his Wellington booze. Yeah, he's sort of herring around the countryside in fast oh, vehicles. Wow. I mean, he was a bit of a naughty one. He had quite a few mistresses, didn't he, the Duke of Welly? Uh, yes, I think he did. No, did he? Oh, do you know what? I'm not, not too sure. I can't remember. It's been so long. I, I think remember. he did. I know one was a woman he called Harriet Wilson. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so right. this so, is in, this is interesting because there is a there is possibly something between them. Um, so they're writing all these letters, but they're also sending each other little gifts. They'll find things on their walks, and as they oh, find stuff, cute. you know, like a flower or something. It's really, really quite sweet, isn't it? Maybe we should start doing that. 
We should yeah. kind of like leave little pebbles for each yeah. other that have got little Star pictures painted on they, them. They send this to each other, which is rather nice. And there's there's a there's a speculation that he was possibly her lover. Okay. Um, the, the letters have very, you know they're very very close, very very close letters. Um, they he you know they yeah it, it, there's there's definitely something very very close there. There was seventy five. I mean. There's even a rumour that they were secretly married in both families, oh. actually, that there is uh, rumours that apparently still exist that they were secretly married. There's no proof of that marriage, though. There is no mm. proof. But we do know that in 1847, Angela Burdett Coutts proposed to the Duke of Wellington. Oh, <gasps> yeah. gosh. He was, well, I guess, you he know, was 33 at this point. I do understand it because she's been having so many people that have probably got down on one knee and she just can't trust them. Yeah. But she can trust the Duke because yeah. he has he has his own money. He has yeah. his own title. Yeah. He's of an age where he's not going to be just marrying her for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. And I guess the Duke obviously says no. Yeah, he turns her down very gently. <laughs> and he, you know, he said, right, it's a lovely letter. And he, he, part of it, he says, my first duty towards you is that of friend, guardian, protector. So it, oh. maybe he, there was an attraction there for him. We'll probably never know. But ultimately he, he felt that his, and he did mention the age difference as well in the letter. And he sort of says, oh, you know, I feel like you've got 20 good years ahead of you kind of thing. And So this is all her. She's wanting an older man. And, well, she's... and he may have done that, but he might also have just thought, you know, while I do want that, it's not the best for you. And, and turned it down because he, he does mention good old it about, Arthur. yeah good good on him good old Willie. Yeah. um another man she is very close to is michael faraday so there's oh, all the big dogs coming out gosh all the big um, dogs and if people don't know who michael faraday is he was i mean he was a bit of an experimental genius at the time he was he um worked with light and magnetism and all this sort of stuff and again um because she is so interested in science and something that her father again kind of um encouraged her to be interested in things like that uh he, he he wasn't really sociable michael Faraday didn't really like all the big sort of social scene but he loved hanging out with her they would meet they would discuss stuff really really interesting and eventually um after the friday lectures at the royal institution um he would kind of come to her afterwards and tell her everything that he'd learned in these lectures and he encourages her to apply for membership of the Royal Society. Oh. She does, and she becomes a full member of the Royal Society in 1847. And was there many female members at the time? Not at all. No, no, not. very much not. Very no. much not. So there we go. So she's got these really interesting friendships. And realistically, you know, all of this is going on alongside her philanthropy, which is just immense. And so I've told you some of the things she's done. And it seems that some one of her, her biographers said that she she never really thought she was done when it came to helping people. And 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 she's clearly not motivated by fame. She doesn't care about it. No. Um, nothing that she's doing is big ticket. Well, some of them are, you know, a bit, a bit like the Crimea and stuff, but she's not doing it for fame. And mm. one of the ways we know this is that there's a lot of stuff that we don't know what she gave the money to. She's got all these logbooks of where the money has gone to. And sometimes she's simply written a, a, an amount, however many pounds, and next to it, it's just written donation. No details oh, so of where only it went. she knows. Yeah. So we'll probably never know where a lot of that stuff went. It's incredible. Wow. And in her lifetime, it's believed that she donated the equivalent of three hundred and fifty million pounds. <gasps> yeah. And how really? much, because I was going to say, did did her money ever dry out? You know, did well, she have money in her will to give to another Coots member? Now, this is where it gets even more interesting. 
if that's even possible. So firstly, I just want to, before we go on to the next interesting bit, I do want to say that, um, you know, all of this didn't go unnoticed. Um, Queen Victoria makes her a baroness in recognition of all of this. So, you know, there is a little bit of recognition there, which is rather nice, but nothing that she was, you know, searching for, whatever. So do you remember a certain clause in the will? Things that she couldn't do if she wanted her... Oh, yes. Yeah. So she couldn't marry somebody that was foreign. Yeah. And oh, what else was it? That's it the had only to, one we need. That's the only one we need. There we go. Yeah. So she hasn't married. OK, she's decided not to marry. She's not interested in it at all until she gets to the age of 66. Ooh. Now, so this money, the condition that she has this money. And so I think I mentioned it was about 165, 170,000, 165 million that she inherited. And she's given away 350 million. So, of course, that, that isn't, you know, some of the money that she's got, but also the interest and all the stuff, because, of course, it's in the bank. So it's doing very well, you know, all that, that money. Um, so she gets to 66 and she meets a chap who is 29. So she likes the age gaps. Does she Anthony? does, doesn't she? Wow. And he is called William Ashmead Bartlett. Okay. Um, and he is, um, Ashmead is his mother's name his father died when he was really young and he grew up in Torquay uh, and all of his four grandparents were English and all this kind of stuff and Queen Victoria said that it was a mad marriage she really wasn't behind it bear in mind Queen Victoria's friends with Angela Burdett Coots and she says it's absolutely mad and it, it's quite a scandalous marriage in society she's 66 she's not what they would term a looker and this guy is 29 years of age but he grew up in Torquay. He's lived in England all of his life, except for the first two years of his life when he was born in America. <gasps> oh, my God, a foreigner. So to all intents and purposes, he's British. His, parents, his grandparents are British. His parents are British. Um, but he just so happened to be born in America, therefore has American citizenship. Okay. And that means that she's going to lose her inheritance overnight. <gasps> yeah. She doesn't care. She, she knows that. She knows that. She knows I mean, that. at the end of the day, she's been kind of, you know, not throwing it around, so to speak, but, you know, giving so much away that yeah. it was never about the money for her, was no. it? No, it wasn't. I mean, it was in terms of being able to do stuff with it. Do, exactly, yeah. yes. Exactly. And to be able to go, do you know what? I feel like I've I've done my duty. But then no, because you said that she always felt that she could do more. Yeah. So she marries William. And it turns out that this is not a marriage, you know, he's not marrying her for her money because, of course, he knows as well that this is going to happen. Um, it's, it seems to be a marriage of love and they are married for 25 years really, really happily. Oh, wow. Yeah, from 66 all the way through till she dies at 92, they're married. <gasps> so I wonder what happens to William. Does he marry again? Do you know, I don't know. I didn't go into William. I'm not I'm not as interested in him. I'm more interested in No, her. let's forget know. William. He may well have done. I mean, he would have been, what? 40-something. Uh, yeah, for, um, well, no, he'd have been slight, just over 50, I think, wouldn't he? No, over mm. 40. No, th oh, God, I can't do maths. 29, just over 50. Yeah. Middle aged. Like um, Interesting. So, wow. And I'm just, just so happy that she found love. Yeah. Because, you know, all those people knocking at her door who just wanted her money, you know, that must have been so off putting. And the trust that she had in men probably was quite low. Um, yeah, I mean, she obviously waited for the guy that she was supposed to be with, which I she just lovely. knew, yeah, knew, and it's quite fairy tale like, isn't it? Because it's like I if mean. you really do love me and you want to be with me, yeah. be aware that when you marry me, all of the money will be gone. Yeah, exactly. So if you really love me, I'll see you down the aisle. 
and is there and she's like oh my god it's lovely isn't it it's really lovely yeah so this inheritance transfers over to her sister um clara oh, so her sister's like finally and her sister um and i think this is this is really lovely i think partly i mean i don't know the reasons behind this but i would love to think that it's because when angela was in uh, inherited the money she gave her sisters an allowance and the, everything that she's done philanthropically but clara gives her sixteen thousand pounds a year wow okay yeah, yeah. so so i mean which is not a huge amount given you know her status but again like you say for her it's not about the money she allows herself a budget of about a thousand pounds a month for household expenses and stuff gosh what's she buying so, well, I mean, this is stuff, isn't it? But um, so that she doesn't have much left for charity. But what she does have, she does still give to charities. Oh. Um, and she's got kind of stocks and shares and things that she gives to her husband and stuff like this. He becomes um, a member of parliament, actually, for Westminster. Wow. Uh, interestingly. Um, and so they live very, very happily in, the, in her house in Stratton Street in uh, just off Piccadilly. And in 1906, at the grand old age of 92, uh, she dies of bronchitis. Mm. And she was such a big deal that her body, she lay in state for three days at their home. And about, well, reports vary, but somewhere in the region of 30,000 people actually come by to pay their respects. In three days. (laughs) I'm not surprised. I mean, the help and the people that she she touched and... God, I'm so shocked and a little bit annoyed at myself that I don't, I, I, you know, before this, I didn't really know her. And can I tell you, the story's not over yet. Really? (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's amazing. So she she dies at the very, very end of 1906, so 30th of December. So she's buried very early 1907. And it it gets even better with her funeral. So (laughs) she has this um, huge parade of people coming past and, and she was known as the Queen of the Poor which I think is rather lovely. Queen of the poor. Yeah. Wow, what a title. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Um, and so because of her status and because of the fact that she is utterly incredible, the mm. Dean of Westminster says, well, look, we, we've got a space in the Abbey, Westminster Abbey, for her. Originally, she wanted to be buried. If you remember her friend Hannah, mm. um, who was her governess and then her longtime friend who had already died by this point, she originally wanted to be buried alongside Hannah. But when Dean of Westminster said, we've got the Abbey, her husband was like, yeah, pretty cool. So... Um, <laughs> The trick was the Abbey was no longer burying full bodies. It was cremations only. Um, and they said, he said to her husband, uh, she has to be cremated first. And her husband was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, fine. But had absolutely no intention of having her cremated. And the day before the funeral, it appeared that not only had she not been cremated, he's also not going to cremate her either. Mm-hmm. And so she has a, you know, a smaller plot because it was supposed to be ashes. And he had seen how... Um, uh, the there was an actor called Henry Irving who'd had quite a small coffin with a with an urn of ashes inside, and so he was like, "Well, we'll just do that instead." So he fit it. He wanted to fit it into a really narrow grave in the Abbey. Now I did read, and I haven't actually verified this, so I'm going to take this slightly, um, just you know, as is, but I'll need to double check it. Um, I did read that she was buried in quicklime without a coffin instead. Oh, I don't know if that's 100 percent true. I've read that somewhere and I meant to double check it, but I didn't quite get around to that. So that is a possibility. I need to double check that. But she's buried very close to Lord Shaftesbury, who is the other philanthropist that um, we mentioned earlier. I've never seen her grave. No, it, it's up um, more towards the west end, up towards the west door, up that way somewhere. Oh, my goodness yeah, me. I know. And, and the amount that her husband spent on it was huge. It was, again, one of those things where 
uh, because she was such a big deal and she had friends in the royal family and all this stuff, the service was attended by royalty, but also people who had benefited from her philanthropy, people from the East End. So you've got the entirety, you know, the, the gamut of people that whose lives she's touched really goes from the top to the bottom. Not that I'm saying that people are at the bottom, you know what I mean, in terms mm-hmm. of... Um, all that you know, class and money and all that kind of thing. And so, again, it's this melting pot of everybody who's at her service, although the the, the chaps who are in charge at the Abbey, the Dean and stuff, are quite peeved about him and the non-cremation things. So they don't they don't actually go. Um, and he paid a huge amount of money for the funeral. He, he paid about uh, £266, which today would be around thirty to £32,000 for the okay. funeral hmm. which was only about 50 quid less than the funeral for the king king edward the seventh whoa so as a result her body not just her ashes her body does lie in the abbey as well God, again and, just showing that william her husband was just such a great guy right he's so good he's so, so good. good and edward the seventh describes that and i think this is possibly the best description of her after my mother she is the most remarkable woman in the kingdom oh which is lovely, isn't it? That is really lovely. And and she does have a bit of a legacy. So the Coots, Coots Bank have a thing called the Coots Foundation, which is an independent charity that is supported by Coots. And um, it, its aim is still to tackle poverty in communities where the bank has uh, you know, a branch or something like that. And one thing in particular, they are very, very strongly linked to St. Martin's in the Fields Church, which is just a couple of minutes walk from the bank itself, uh, the main one on the Strand. Um, and St Martin's in the Field have a very big, very important homeless charity um, that's there. Um, and so Coops support that and have given on that. Well, their website says in the last since 2017, so the last sort of five years, they've given about £400,000 wow. to that alone. Um, and the staff raise and raise funds and things like that. And they volunteer there as well. So, you know, her legacy is very much one of um, philanthropic nature and particularly um, combating poverty. She's just wonderful. Wow, I am so <laughs> impressed with this lady. Isn't I need up? to. I need to. I don't even know what she looks like. Uh, let me. Uh, we'll put a picture on our Instagram. We'll put a I'm picture on bring our up a picture for for Emily now because um, she she looks a bit sort of. She almost looks a little bit school mommy. It's all um, right. I've got one here. I've got one. Oh no! <laughs> it's a show in Angela Coots in 2020. I don't think that's her. Maybe not. So when no, bring, she's, yeah, she, she's, there's a lovely picture of her. I mean, most of the pictures of her are a bit older. Um, but there's one of her younger where she's really rather sort of elegant and sort of reclining um, and looking rather very thoughtful. Oh, there she is. I would not. I would say that she is a very beautiful woman. I mean, I think so. And there's a picture of, oh, there's a painting, not a picture, but a painting of her getting married as well. And it's really rather funny because uh, I'm just going to share my screen with Emily so she can see. Um, this picture right here of uh, the marriage and she sort of the guys painted her staring at what what would be the camera essentially oh that's fantastic yeah, amazing she was dressed in white velvet for her wedding as well which would have looked wow. absolutely in lace old lace as well um amazing alex thank you so much angela burdick coots what a woman what's a woman <laughs> wow I think this is going to be one of the longest ones we've done so far but um and well, I, there's just like, so much isn't I, there? Could have gone in, I could have gone could probably done an entire podcast on just urania cottage because there's so much interesting stuff with that but um uh, yeah i decided to <laughs> wow podcast pedestal gosh i mean there's quite a few things there for podcast pedestal yeah yeah 
yeah I, I wasn't quite sure because I was thinking about this today about oh, what am I going to pick and I'm not sure like there's so many things I thought I knew but then at the end <laughs> you said something and I thought I just love um, how many chapters really there are to her go for that. how many completely separate chapters to her life there are and just how she defies convention at every end and turn that's it as well I I'm very tempted to go for her proposing to the Duke of Wellington oh yeah because as you say it's you know in terms of how she did so many things as a woman that you just would not expect her to do yeah to propose to a man back then, and not only a man, but the Duke of Wellington, to have to have the the balls to be like, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose. Who are you gonna propose to? The Duke okay. of Wellington. Yeah. Really? <laughs> the armed forces, whatever. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, I think I might have to go for that because it just shows the gumption. Yeah. But I'm also quite tempted by the quote at the end. Yeah, it's a good quote. What are you thinking? Well, I think I, I, having sort of not known what I was going to pick all week, I think in the last two minutes, it's solidified in my brain what I want to pick. And it's really something super small. Um, and you're going to laugh at me because it is, I mean, there's so many things that are probably worth picking. I'm going to pick the entrance in her log that is uh, sort of undisclosed donations. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> is it? Is it though? It's a bit weird. It's a bit weird, but because I just think for me, she's I, I just love her. She's utterly brilliant. And the fact that because so many people would have done it, it. This is the thing, you know, you, you talk about philanthropists, and if you say, Oh, somebody, you, you give a philanthropist name, someone will go, Oh yes, they did this, or oh yes, they did that. And you don't hear about Angela Burdett Coots because she did so much that you kind of can't pin her down to anything. And I love the fact that for her, it wasn't about fame and it wasn't about having her name attached to anything. And if she just thought that somebody over there needed a bit of cash, she'd put it in her logbook. She'd note it down, mm. but she wasn't that bothered about logging it for posterity or maybe even just not, she didn't want people to know where it was going. And I love that. I love that thing of, I have this money. I want to do something right with it. Somebody over there needs that bit of cash. I'm just going to pop it down. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't need according to posterity so undisclosed donations i think are going to be mine. undisclosed donations i think that's a fantastic one um i think i'm going to go for the the king's quote king's quote yeah yeah i think i'm going to go for the king's quote i think that's a good one i like that quote i think it says so much about her it does and the fact that it's it's coming from the king i know yeah so yeah, I think, that quote I think... is after my mother she is the most remarkable woman in the kingdom Mm. I think it's lovely. That's beautiful. Yes, I'm going to go for that. Bearing in mind that his mother, of course, is Queen Vic. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there we go. Those are your okay. options this week. Fabulous. Thank you so, so much, Alex. King's King Edward the Seventh quote, and we've got uh, what we're going to call it: undisclosed donations. That sounds really rubbish. It's not going to win, but <laughs> it's not smog taxi dudes. <laughs> that's for sure. Not smog taxi dudes. Um, Undisclosed donations, I think that's fine. Yeah. I don't know how many, I can't remember how many letters the poll on Instagram is. It's quite short, but, isn't it? Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure, figure it out. out. So there we go. So that's Fantastic. it for this week. That is um yeah, that poll will go up on Instagram at Ladies Who London Podcast on Sunday and also on our personal podcast polls as well. 
Um, before we figure out what's happening next week, what have you got coming up, Em? So, um, I still got my garden tour, <laughs> which is on the 24th of April, 2 still? p.m. Still? Hour and a half. Still. I haven't decided it's, it's going to be deleted. Um, so, if you want to see that, it's uh, £10 per person, and you can find that on the LondonTourGroup.com. And also, if you go to the LondonTourGroup.com and you go to the tour shop, you'll see a list of walking tours, which include a legal walk, which include um, streets, uh, street art walk. Um, we've got uh, Southwark Walk have a little look on there and you'll see the different ones that we have amazing and does it say who the guide is because it's not always you is it no it's not so the London Tour Group is myself and two other fantastic Blue Badge guides so uh, me Emily and an another Emily as well Emily Lawrence Baker who's fantastic and also Rowan Freeland why is he not called Emily damn him I know damn <laughs> We call him Emily, so it's fine. Fabulous. <laughs> Emily the third. And um, what about yourself? Uh, well, so I'm really excited because this Sunday, my virtual tour series is kicking off with Curious Camden, uh, which I'm thrilled about because it's an area that I really love. So uh, that is going to be this Sunday, but it's uh, the start of four virtual tours. You can do all four for 30 quid and get a watch back option as well. Or you can book them individually for £10 and it's Curious Camden. And then she says, trying to remember what on earth the different tours are. Um, just going to vamp for a second here while I bring up my website. Uh, <laughs> here we go, virtual tours. So we've got Curious Camden. I can't remember which order they're in. Uh, then the next one, yes, the next one is Behind Bankside, which is snippets of London's past. Really exciting little area. Then we've got Secrets of the City of London, uh, all the little bits you, uh, you walk past every day. And then after that is Best of Bermondsey, which is an area uh, near where I live, which is lovely. So we're going to be looking at those. So those are all four. And my walking tours are now up on my website. Yay! Um, my Harlots walking tour, street art. They're starting back on the 1st of May and they're going to be pretty much every weekend. There's the odd weekend where I'm away doing something, but they're pretty much every weekend. Um, Harlots, street art, we've got Women of Westminster, Black London, we've got Secrets of the City as well, uh, Transatlantic Slave Trade. There's a whole variety of walking tours. I've got them up until I think the middle of June. And then when we get closer to that, I'll, I'll release more dates. But do come and have a little look. I'm so excited to get out guiding again. Quite. Yay. Fantastic. The Wheel of Destiny. So it's my pick for next week. Yeah. So um, I'm going to get ready to spin the wheel. Spin the wheel, baby. <laughs> I'm going to spin the wheel. Okay. And we're off. And oh, I thought the arrow was about to fall off then. Um, <laughs> Don't break it. <laughs> It nearly span off. There's so much work into it. it. Well, it's landed where the smog landed. Oh, Mayfair? Yes. Which, 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 in fairness, the smog wasn't linked to Mayfair. Exactly. The smog wasn't linked to Mayfair, so I don't feel too bad. That's all right. Don't feel too bad. Um, so Mayfair. Gosh, yeah, we've got the, the hotels. You've got... Oh, what we've already done the Mayfair, haven't we? We've done the Mayfair. Um, there's so many people that associate themselves with the area. Ooh, actually, I think I might go for Norman Hartnell. Ooh, interesting. The Queen's uh, uh, designer for her wedding dress. Yes, and yes. So there might be a few things in there, perhaps, about Prince Philip, too. Oh, oh that would so, be quite nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah so um, he lived in Mayfair and had his, had his designer shop there as well. So... <laughs> Norman yes, Hartnell, not Prince Philip. No. 
no. So yeah, that's what I'm going to go for. Amazing. That sounds good. I like that. He's he's yeah, a bit of a mega yes. dude. Is, is yeah, it's a very interesting character. Yeah. So that's it. There we go. Okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, listen. Thank you, everyone, for coming and uh, listening. Please do go and vote on Sunday if you have listened by then. If not, don't worry about it. Um, and, <laughs> or if not, too late. Um, and we will see you next week talking about Norman Hartnell. Um, but until then, have a wonderful week. Stay safe, stay sane. And we'll see you next week. See you next week, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.